Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Writer John Higgs helps us to make sense of the 20th century in his book, Stranger Than We Can Imagine. John Higgs is the author of I Have America Surrounded, The Life of Timothy Leary, The KLF, Chaos, Magic and the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds, and the novel The Brandy and the Damned. His latest book is Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century, which is what we're going to be talking about today. John, thank you very much for joining me on Little Atoms. Hello, Neil. This book, what is it about? What's the idea? About the 20th century. The basic idea, to try and distill it down, is the notion that we're all very comfortable with all the the great discoveries and innovations of history up until about the end of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Anything up till then, you know, electricity, photography, agriculture, makes sense to us. You know, we might not uh, understand understand it. it. We might not be able to build a steam engine, but there's nothing about the existence of steam engines that fills us with existential dread. You know, we're comfortable with it. But then you hit the 20th century and you immediately get Einstein and relativity and cubism and modernism and existentialism and quantum mechanics and postmodernism and chaos mathematics and psychedelia mm-hmm. and everything that was new, everything that was radical, everything that was a great innovation of the 20th century is just so off putting and disturbing. And the, the natural temptation is to go, oh, Jesus, that's not for me. Yeah. I'll just step back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really need to know about that. I'll catch up later when it gets a bit clearer. Uh, Which is totally understandable, but it does mean that we're here in the 21st century looking at it with 19th century eyes Mm -hmm. and thinking, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. We do need to take on board what we discovered in the 20th century, and this is what this book is about. Well, we'll come back in a second to talk about what perhaps happened at the the dawn of the 20th century, what Mm. happened to the human psyche that made it made those changes happen. But before we do that, why did you think it was a good idea to write this book? Why did you want to take this rather colossal task on? Yeah. You know, the 20th century was the period of time that made me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's the context for at least the first half of my life. 
so I felt like I should understand it. And the books I'd written before, I'd written about uh, Timothy Leary, I'd written about the KLF, and every time I was doing those, they sort of revealed to me the wider context of the times were far stranger than I understood. Things like uh, the Timothy Leary story, I was writing about psychedelia, the 60s, the 70s. I had no idea that that led directly into the the personal computer revolution. I didn't realise that Silicon Valley is where it is due to the vast amount of, you know, psychedelics that were being taken there just a few years before. Uh, I didn't realise that whole psychedelic scene came out of, you know, the beat writers and and things Mm -hmm. like that. It was all more interconnected. So the notion of getting your head around the 20th century seemed more and more valuable the the more I I sort of wrote about these things. And it's like 2015 now, you know. We should have a good sense. But the sense of the 20th century that we tend to have is, um, we all know it, it just, uh, it's... Start, you know, there's the First World War, there's uh, the Great Depression, the Second World War, mm-hmm. Cold War, the fall of the Berlin War. It's this, these great shifts of geopolitical power. That's the story yeah. we're told, and it's a fine story, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a clear narrative, it's, I have nothing against it, but it doesn't seem to lead into the world we live in now. Yeah. And I just thought there must be another story that would help us make sense of where the hell we are at this moment. That would be more useful and valuable. And those uh, sort of big, weighty 20th century history books that tell you, you know, take you step by step through the, the Great Battle and the Second World War or something, or you know, the, the books about the 1950s and 60s, hmm. they don't often have the, um, you know, the part, for instance, that... Satanism played in some of those movements. There's very little Satanism <laughs> in them all. It's, 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 I've noticed that. It's surprising how many of those are written by um, politicians mm-hmm. or political journalists or very politically influenced historians. Yeah. And they all kind of take the view that to tell the story of the 20th century, you tell the story of the politicians uh, as if they were the people who made that century. Now, particularly with the 20th century, that really wasn't the case at all. You know, the politicians were pretty much the last to know about what was happening in the 20th century. And, you know, not a huge amount of Satanism in those, in those books either, so fail on both counts. So let's, let's go back to the, um, the sort of 19th century minds. Hmm. Coming to the, um, you know, the, end of the, the end of that century, and we'll talk about some of the things that might have happened. But um, in the book, you raise this concept. You look at a, a lot of the, the chapters through this concept of something called the omphalos. Omphalos. I yeah. don't know how to pronounce it. How would you pronounce well, it? I pronounce it omphalos. Okay, well, that's and good. I've got that. That'll do for me. I don't claim to be an educated man who, who knows the correct uh, pronunciations of things. Uh, let's go for omphalos. Yeah, let's do that. So, what does that mean? It's a fixed point. Right? It's the centre of the world. Yeah. This, it's, a, a, it's a universal constant of every culture this notion that there is either the navel of the world or the world pillar or somewhere from which everything else makes sense Mm -hmm. for the ancient greece it was delphi in the delphic oracle there was the omphalos and uh, the story goes that zeus wanted to know where the center of the world was so he released two eagles Mm -hmm. and they flew towards each other and they collided and fell down at delphi and that meant because this is god logic that meant that was the center of the world that made Yeah, you know, but you know, Zeus was happy with that, so I'm not going to argue with him. But um, at the same time, in ancient Japan, for instance, Mount Fuji was Mm -hmm. the the omphalos uh, for the Sioux Indians. It was the Black Hills. Then later, uh, all roads led to Rome for the Roman empires, and and then Jerusalem became the Mm centre of the world. Uh, It was constantly changing, constantly moving throughout history. This notion of what was the fixed point, the centre of the world. And at the end of the 19th century, it was the 
the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, mm-hmm. marking zero degrees latitude. That was the centre of the world, for at least to the, the, the mind of the, the British Empire. And you, um, you, you sort of set the scene with the, then the anarchist guy who attempts like completely out of the blue and for no discernible reason that could be could be discerned afterwards to blow it up. Yeah, Marshal Boudin. He was, uh, there was a novel by Conrad, I think, uh, uh, based the, on... The Secret Agent. The Secret Agent, based on this attempt. Uh, it was the first, uh, first piece of international terrorism on British soil, I believe. A French anarchist built a bomb, thought, well, I'm in London, I've got a bomb... I think I'll go to the Greenwich Observatory. And it didn't go too well for him. It, it blew up uh, a little bit too soon, mm-hmm. killed him, never explained, he never managed to explain what he was trying to do. And everyone was so utterly bewildered because everyone was thinking, well, if I had a bomb in London, I would maybe go to, you know, the Houses of Parliament. I might go to Downing Street. Mm-hmm. I might go to Buckingham Palace. Why on earth would you go to an observatory? I mean, what is it about an observatory that is worth risking your life you know, to destroy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a big puzzle, and nobody really had an answer. It just, just it seemed that the man was mad, as it were. But the notion of the Greenwich Observatory as the fixed point of a global system of, you know, positioning and time mm-hmm. around the entire world, it was, the, it was the fixed point of the entire global system, for want of a, a better word. And that seems to be what attracted Marshall Bourdon onto it, and that's what he wanted to, you know, he wanted to plunge his heart into the knife of the beast... It was, it, was, it was the British Empire's omphalos. So we're talking about the 20th century, and as often happens, this is like a sort of the cultural idea of the 20th century rather than something that starts you know, on the eve of sure. whatever, 1901, and ends up in, you know, in the year 2000, whichever we got, you know, one of those, we got the millennium wrong. I'm yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not sure what it was. <laughs> but um, we, let's just skip forward a few years to 1905, which I guess is the point where the, the first chapter that you talk about with Einstein. This book is Einstein. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the obvious place to start. I mean that's that's where um, you know I, I view this story. I mean, a hundred years is obviously an arbitrary time period, yeah. and, and historians know this, uh, and hence they write things like the the, the long nineteenth century, mm-hmm. which I think goes from seventeen eighty something to nineteen fourteen, or yeah. the short twentieth century. They don't really stick with a hundred years. Mm-hmm. But for my purposes, twentieth century is fine because it was from when things stopped making sense to where we are now. That's mm-hmm. what I was interested in. And at, at right at the start, there comes Einstein and relativity, which is probably the most, for most people, incomprehensible, bewildering, sort of off-putting um, advances in, in the physical sciences. Mm-hmm. It's, a hundred, it's over 100 years, and most people haven't got a damn clue what the, the hell it's about. It's explained so badly to people. But at the core of it is this idea that these omphalosses that I was talking about, these fixed points, are entirely arbitrary mm-hmm. and don't actually exist in the real world they're just things we mentally project onto yeah. it for all that people would uh, the rest of the world uh, agreed that Greenwich meantime was was the fixed point in the center of the world there was a, a big international meeting in, in yeah. the 19th century and uh, all the countries came together, and it was a foregone conclusion because America was using GMT, and I think 72% of the world's shipping maps were using mm-hmm. the Meridian Line. So it was always going to happen, yeah. but it wasn't universal. Yeah. You know, the French, right, they abstained. Right? For the French, the, the, the centre of the universe, the centre of France, is this point called Point Zero. 
which is, uh, if you go to Notre Dame, it's just in front of Notre Dame in, in the pavement. There's this little plaque, this little, little star. For them, that's the centre of the French world. And it brings home the point that these things are whatever we say they are. Yeah. And in science... You know, in school we were probably taught uh, to plot the position of things using Cartesian axes, X, Y and Z, with a little zero origin, and we can work out where things are from there. What Einstein was about, essentially, was just deleting those, was just rubbing those out, because they don't actually exist. They're not actually a a property of the universe itself. I mean, we're free to project any particular point as being a fixed point. You know, we're free to um, measure everything from wherever we like, but what we can't do, and this is what Einstein was about, we can't say any one of those points has a priority, has any special quality over all the others. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all arbitrary. And it doesn't seem much. Yeah. It doesn't seem such a big radical thing. But when you get when you start looking at the at the physical world with that understanding, uh, it gets very, very strange very, very quickly. I'm Emma Jane Unsworth and you're listening to Little Atoms, a podcast about ideas and culture. I mean, I guess the other event that's going to happen, and you talk about it sort of in a separate chapter, but I want to bring it in to cover all of the... We're going to talk about modernism and then the eventual rise of individualism. Mm. But the thing as well that comes... We're talking about Einstein's general... I'm sorry, Einstein's special theory of relativity at, at the moment. By the time he gets to come up with his general theory of relativity in EMC squared, which is the thing that you know, most people will be familiar with, mm. the other thing that's going on is the First World War. Yeah. And... You know, this is obviously, you know, a huge cataclysmic event, but it's also something that completely destroys the existing political order as well. It changes the emphasis on how we see Absolutely. power in that sort of way, isn't it? I mean it's it's almost see it's it's almost a surprise to us now when you look back at that pre World War One, that beginning of the nineteenth century mm-hmm. and realise this was a world of emperors, right, of emperors and czars yeah. and kaisers. It just seems slightly ludicrous. It seems like something out of Game of Thrones yeah. or something. But, you know, we had the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, we had the Ottoman Empire, we had the Russian Empire, the German Empire, British Empire, Japanese Empire, Chinese Empire, and, you know, the rest of the world sort of carved up by all, all these things. It was just the way the world had always been, mm-hmm. you know, since like, Alexander the Great, since before that. There never had been a time without this notion that, uh, of having an absolute lord, mm-hmm. you know, an absolute master, these hierarchical structures on society. And the idea had been um, chipped away at over the preceding few hundred years, certainly from the English Civil War, certainly during the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of the rise of the rights of man, of representative democracy, all these sort of things have been chipping away at, at, at this notion. But it still existed. Yeah. There were still emperors. And we were understood in that sort of know-your-place mindset, okay? It wasn't uh, that a person, wasn't what a person was like, whether they were a good person, a kind person, a competent person that mattered. What was important was where they were in the hierarchy, you know? It mattered more if you were a serf or a general than than what you were like as a person. We were just in these sort of fixed hierarchies. Mm -hmm. It seems ludicrous to us now. It really does, but that was the way it had always been. And there didn't seem to be any indication that it could be anywhere else. And then, bam, immediately after the First World War, it's like a blink of an eye in historic terms. It's over, you know. It was the way things had always been, and it was gone. You know, the the emperors were, you know, either sent into exile or, you know, in the case of 
uh, the Tsar, you know, taken down into a cellar and, and shot with all their family, or which, whichever your your particular <laughs> uh, preference was in these things. You know, um, it may be the Japanese emperor lasted to the end of the mm-hmm. Second World War before being stripped of all their power. But in the blink of an eye, the way things had always been gone, and now that fixed point in, in political society, uh, you, I mean, you might not have liked the way things were ordered, but you knew how they were ordered. We were all mm-hmm. linked to that one point up above us, that emperor, our lord, you know. That was gone. And it's, it's weird uh, how similar... Uh, it was to what Einstein was coming up with, just this, this removal of this fixed point that we can orient, orientate ourselves with. just happened across all the society. It happened in art as well as, yeah. as, well as politics and science. It was, it was odd. It was like humanity just went up a gear all at once. You know, there was no obvious cause for it. It just happened. It was like it was when like, life came out of matter or consciousness came out of life. It, you know, things had been going uh, the same way for millennia, 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 and all of a sudden a different level sort of pops into, into play for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. It's very, very significant at that point. Very, very radical. I want to move us on to art and you know, the rise of modernism because it doesn't seem like an obvious, an obvious link, but not only... I mean, not necessarily directly. The thing, these things were obviously there in the culture that the artists were working in. But certainly to begin with, the ideas of Einstein and then going on to the sort of quantum theorists as we get... You know, on until the sort of thirties and forties, you can see the the effect that those movements had on artistic movements as well. Sure, started with modernism. So let's let's talk about that link in modernism first of all. Yeah, in fact, that was one of the first sparks that formed the book. Was seeing one of Dali's pieces. Um, in fact, it was a sculpture of a melting a melting clock that they had at County Hall. Uh, and just looking at that little plaque underneath it and noting the date and going, oh, that was just after Einstein showed that time was not fixed, but Bent. The, and, and understanding it differently then, just, just sort of seeing, seeing that link. That seemed an, ob- an obvious way that art and, and science were, were all connected. Mm-hmm. But this, again, I keep going back to this notion of, of removing the f- of fixed points. And when you look at pretty much a huge, well, I mean, modernism is a, is a big, big subject, but you know, wherever you look, you keep finding it. I mean, our cubism is an obvious example. Mm-hmm. Cubists, painters, it was no longer enough just to take one perspective on what they were painting. They had to look at it from a whole bunch of different angles and, and go around the side and go above and see all these different things and then attempt to try and condense that down into, into one single image. So it was you know, rejecting again the idea that there was one fixed point from which something could be understood. You see that in, say, atonal music, mm-hmm. uh, Schoenberg, the Viennese sort of um, school, which most music is based around a central note, a central tone, and all the other notes in the composition make sense because they're based on that. You know, uh, in, in Vienna, they got rid of that idea that there was this central tone, and it's left a lot of music that's still very challenging to my ear, I would, <laughs> I, I would say. It's, it's an idea that just... You see it in literature, if you view the fixed point of literature as, um, as the central narrative. You know, a, a lot of the modernist writers were just sort of rejecting that. Uh, uh, the idea of Joyce trying to write the city of Dublin into existence in Ulysses, trying to understand the city from every perspective mm-hmm. by rejecting the idea of, of a fixed narrative from which everything makes sense for Ulysses. It's, what's interesting is it's not a clear case that artists were inspired by Einstein because if you look at a lot of the modernists, they were pursuing this idea of rejecting you know, a fixed and favoured mm-hmm. perspective before Einstein. It's just something that just arose 
simultaneously in every corner of, of the world and society and politics, as we say now. With the development of film and photography and, mm. and as well, which, you know, the, the, the sort of new descent in the staircase being the, the sort of obvious case. Oh. But this, this also works on, on a number of levels as well, because in the book you talk about, you know, what has become an incredibly famous incident, the premiere of The Riot of Spring. Yeah. Um, which... Talking about seeing things from different sort of points of view, it's barely a hundred years ago this thing happening, and yet it's a myth. It's a thing that could have been like five hundred years ago because nobody really knows what happened. Yeah, I mean, all the more recent research has gone back to find contemporary evidence mm-hmm. of the great riot that was sparked by the premier of the Rite of Spring, and there isn't any. There's subs- I mean, the 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 police records have mysteriously disappeared and, th- and things like that. But in the newspapers and, and journals of the time, no mention of, the, of, this, of this mythic riot. It seems to be a story that's attached itself over time, uh, which is kind of interesting in itself because mm-hmm. myths need something to form around. You know, the, not every single badly received premiere gets a myth, <laughs> a myth of a huge riot. You know, there's something about the music of the riot spring that deserves it. You know, you listen to it, you go, "Yeah, I'd make a myth of a rat mm. around that." You know, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. But again, you know, there's, there's the rice spring's got all these polyrhythms, these sort of clashing rhythms, refusing to accept just one perspective, just throwing mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different ones together. It's a similar, similar idea. But that's one of its wildest and most um, ah, one of its most exciting expressions. I think it's great. Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John Hicks and we're talking about his book Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century. And John, in the second part, I want to concentrate on, go real, really inward and look at ourselves. Yeah. We've been talking about some sort of movement in science and art, but I want to talk about the changes to our, you know, to the human psyche, to psychology and to our sex lives and to, you know, things like existentialism and nihilism perhaps, but specifically... Mm-hmm. Let's begin with looking at the rise of the idea of individualism, which now, as something from our distant vantage point, seems so obvious, mm. but really is like a relatively recent phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to what we were just talking about when we got rid of the emperors, mm-hmm. right? And all political power was invested in the emperors, or, or mostly, uh, most of political power anyway. And once the emperors were gone, we suddenly had to uh, share political power between ourselves with democracy. This is when we get universal suffrage. This is when people get the vote. Mm-hmm. And without that figurehead of society, the obvious, uh, when well, that's been beheaded, uh, we start to view ourselves as the central focus for understanding the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a... It's slightly abstract, but it is the sort of logical result of all, everything we've been talking yeah. about so far, which is freeing and liberating and exciting, but at the same time isolating, because the moment you start to think of yourself as an individual you stop thinking of yourself as part of wider groups wider social groups so it has this sort of darker edge to it all along you know and it took some coming to terms with the idea of thinking of ourselves as individuals which is much of what the the story of the 20th century was about is kind of 
often are violent and dark and hard and challenging, but also exciting and thrilling and liberating mm-hmm. story. And, and it's, sort of, it's the 20th century in a nutshell, really. And so let's talk about, I mean, some of the people that you, that you choose to look at as sort of pioneers of, of the idea of individualism. I mean, mm. we could think of the, you know, the, I mean, I guess the whole of the um, 20th century is often described as the American century and this, this mm. sort of idea of sort of rugged individualism on the, um, you know, sure. on the frontier and stuff is, is sort of a, a, perhaps a, an older idea in America. But then, you know, you talk about people it's like... not so know, much, actually. You know, the myth of the West mm. does come after the West was settled. You know, from about 1890 on, onwards mm-hmm. or, or something like that. It, during the time that the cowboys were around, it didn't sort of exist. It was only after it was gone that the, this idea of this, this rugged, free um, individual sort of caught the public imagination. And it's interesting because there are cowboys in other parts of the world, you know, functionally yeah. similar examples of cowboys in Andalusia or... Um, I don't know, Australia or various places. Argentina, Argentina, exactly. That didn't have quite the same hold on our imaginations as the American West, the American cowboy. Uh, And it was this, this notion of them as free, free individuals with no, you know, master or lord above them Mm -hmm. uh, that was so in tune with the times that that was so appealing to, to people. And, that's obviously been, you know, throughout this period of time, is being glorified in, in cinema. You know, the Westerns have become one of the most popular cinema genres. But I want to sort of get us to, um, well, Anne Rand, basically. That's all of the, <laughs> yeah. the darker manifestations of, uh, well, she's, of this idea. She's very much of this tradition. I mean, I, I go back to someone like Alistair Crowley, yeah, who, was, sure. who would come out and say, do what thou wilt, mm-hmm. which is just the logical conclusion of individualism, yeah. you know, uh, to its almost shocking extent. And Anne Rand is very much in that tradition of the uh, individual first is morally and uh, intellectually the correct mm-hmm. uh, way to live your life, knowing full well how isolating the philosophy is. Mm-hmm. I mean, talking about cowboys, the, the it's, I think the ultimate expression of individualism in the 20th century was the Clint Eastwood character, the man with no name, yeah, you know, yeah. Sergio Leone movies, and he was so cool. He had no name, right? <laughs> because he was so isolated from the rest of society. Right? He didn't need a name. That's how isolated mm-hmm. he was. And in the 20th century, we were going, oh, wow, he's so cool. He doesn't even have a name. You know, that's how we saw the world. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the philosophy of Crowley to Anne Rand is, is very much part of that's that similar set of ideas, and, and that works uh, very well for a individual if they are, you know, a person that's completely isolated mm. from anybody else. But of course, as soon as two people or ten people or a village or a society mm. bash up against each other with competing individualistic yeah. needs, it becomes a bit more complicated. That's where the problem comes in. It's you know, it, it's it's the the problem of the commons, as as it's called. This is why. We were talking about the Satanism earlier, mm-hmm. the the, uh, the Church LeVay. of Satan, Anton LaVey. They just say, yeah, we're basically, you know, Anne Rand, but with trappings, you know. <laughs> a few more goats, basically, yeah. some horns, and Anne Rand wasn't so big on the goats. But the central idea of Satanism <laughs> and Anne Rand boils down to the same thing. She talked about wanting to form a new post-Christian form of morality centred on the self. Mm-hmm. She would talk about the virtue of selfishness. And now, to me and you, you think, well, that's very different to Christianity. That's very, very different to, you know, love thy neighbour as thyself or, mm-hmm. or whatever. So it's always confusing when, to certain sections of the American right, Christianity and Amran seem to go together. 
that's very odd, certainly to Europeans, to, to understand. That's a, that's a very, very, very weird thing. At the same time that these, the sort of movement of individualism is happening, one of the things that sort of speeds that along is a growth in you know, Freud, psychoanalysis mm. and well, and this idea, you talk about, you know, the, the idea of the, you know, the id, the superego and the ego. Let's yeah. talk about that for a bit. Yeah, I mean, it was being at the time when we'd sort of lost the notion of knowing your place, of having this master above us, that sort of went. Uh, In Freud's model, at least one of Freud's models, he had the superego and the id as these two contrasting drives, I guess is probably the right word. Uh, The superego was about uh, obeying the laws of society and and playing by the rules and and being good. Mm -hmm. And the id was just about desires and impulses and just going wild and doing all the wonderful things that you want to do. And when emperors went, and that know-your-place thing went, the pull of the superego was no longer as strong. And then you hit the, you know, the, the 30s, and suddenly there's this wild, the jazz age, this wild sense of liberation and, and sexual freedom mm-hmm. and, and, and hedonism and, uh, and all the things that the Victorians were just appalled by would just, just sort of come into play. And, and you see it in the way people dressed, the dances they did. There was, it was just suddenly so liberating and, and, and freeing than it had been before. And then that also, so that sort of gives an explanation as well for how readily people went along with fascism, basically. It was almost like, you know, the, the dictatorship government saying, you know, we're the superhero, we're saying, mm. you know, we're giving you permission, we're giving you orders to go out and commit all of this terrible stuff. That was one of those rare times where obeying what you were told by your government satisfied both your super ego in that you were obeying them and your id in that you were being you know, evil and destructive and, and terrible at the same time. This is uh, the theory of the mass psychology of, of fascism. This, mm-hmm. is, this is all about the mass society and controlling the mass society. When, as I say, our power had been distributed away from an emperor to a democratic society, people who were still in charge of the society had to find different ways of controlling them. And uh, this, is, this is when you get the rise of fascism. This is when you, you, know, you, you, you get some horrible, horrible uh, years in the centre of the 20th century. One of the things that comes out of that, sort of post the Second World War, I guess, but, but sort of during it as well, I mean, we can talk about philosophers such as Jean-Paul Sartre. And in the book, you start off that discussion of, of, sort of nihilism and existentialism with, I guess, another philosopher, Rick Blaine. Oh, mighty Rick Blaine. Yes, Casablanca. Yeah, I love Casablanca. Me too. Uh, I love all Hollywood films from the 1940s. It's just, I don't know, they don't have, there's none of the sentimentality you get after mm-hmm. and, and none of the sort of tweeness you, you get before the 1940s. They're, you know, people have been through World War II, you know, there was, uh, there was a certain honesty and directness about those films in mm-hmm. the 1940s. They're just wonderful. And this was the period where the centre of innovation in, in, in the world, which had been the first half of the 20th century, Germany, Definitely Germany and, and German-speaking Europe. You know, Vienna, um, Switzerland, Austria. Um, that was where all ideas were coming from. You know, mm-hmm. that's where you get Einstein. That's where you get Freud. This is uh, quantum mechanics. This mm-hmm. this was the real hotbed of innovation. But it was it was laid. It was uh, then came the cancer of fascism when it was over. And that's when America starts to become the... It becomes the American century. Yes. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. America takes over then. America's leading the, the, the way we develop. And Casablanca is an interesting film because Rick Blaine, he's um, an isolated anti-hero. You get a lot of these anti-heroes suddenly mm-hmm. arriving at the first time. You know, he sticks his neck out for no one. You know, he drinks alone. 
Uh, he's obviously a very romanticised mm-hmm. uh, anti-hero in that you just want to, you know, oh, he's so cool, you think he's so cool, despite how damaged and, and uh, he is. But he's an example of that sort of logical conclusion of the rise of the individual in the first half of Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 20th century. The beat writers were a, a, a similar sort of thing. Uh, that isolated, lonely person with nothing to believe in. You know, no. Um, this is this is where you get the rise of existentialism. Yeah. This is this is where you get the sense that life is meaningless. See, it was sort of a logical conclusion from from being cut off from everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get this this sort of dark period, and it's it was. It was especially noticeable after the Second World War, because at the end of the war, everyone was so relieved, and they just wanted to go back to how things had been. But, you know, how had things been? You know, the period between the wars had been so tumultuous and and full of change that we hadn't really come to terms with what we'd discovered about ourselves, hadn't really come to terms with what it meant to live in a society that understood that officers were arbitrary and and they were all isolated and and separate from each other. And it was only at the end of the Second World War that people started to deal with that, and then you get Jean-Paul Sartre Mm -hmm. and and Nausier and... uh, and all, all those all those sort of things that can seem a bit navel gazing at the to the modern eye, I think, to, to the to the modern ear. I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And also a bit a bit bleak, I guess. So perhaps very, let's, um, let's sort of very very bleak. Yeah. Yes. So let's. I don't know. Brighten that up a bit as well, because the other thing that comes, I mean, I guess, comes out of the Second World War specifically, the end of the Second World War, but has obviously been been growing before that, is a sort of concept of, I guess, universal human rights mm. that later in, later in the 20th century we'll see the, you know, the, the sort of advances in you know, sort of anti-racism and, and sexual politics and things. Mm. Um, but, I mean, let's talk about... Well, we'll talk about sex mm. and um, your chapter on sex, which basically charts the, the sort of changing attitude to, to sex in both you know, society and literature over the course of the 20th century and sort of starts with a sort of interesting character, Mary Stokes, yeah. who I think is a good example of the sort of contradictions that our attitudes to sex have, have changed over the, over the years. She's one of those 
remarkable figures as Mary Stokes. You get one about every 50 years or so who will come along and sort of open up a whole new territory in the centre of our culture that nobody sort of acknowledged before and be briefly lionised for mm-hmm. it, but at that point start to become toxic because of a sort of messianic yeah. personality. The sort of personality that could um, produce this new territory in our, in our culture is, is often difficult and, mm-hmm. and troublesome. So, and then 50 years later, you've got Timothy Leary, who, who did a similar sort of thing. And, and then 50 years later, you get Julian Assange. And people like Julian Assange, people, we, we'll talk warmly about someone like Snowden. Yeah. People will be very positive about Snowden, but won't stand by Assange. But it's Assange's personality that opened up that sort of territory in the first place that mm-hmm. Snowden could come into. And Mary Stokes was the same with contraception, with the, the idea that sex without purpose of procreation was of value. Mm -hmm. You know, she was the one who put that front and centre in our society. It takes a very driven personality to do that. Mm -hmm. It's not the sort of thing that anyone can do. Obvious afterwards, it seems utterly, you know, unarguable. But beforehand, it was just such a scandalous and unacceptable position. So, a very interesting character, Mary Stokes, yeah. I mean, we now know her as just a horrible racist, basically. But without her, the acceptance of contraception was, would not have happened at that point. You know, it did need. There was a lot of people fighting for it and arguing for it. But sometimes you need a shit kicker, mm-hmm. essentially a real shit kicker, to come along and just kick something right into our culture, which is what she did. And as I said, the parallel with the changing attitudes to sex in society, which leads you know from obviously Mary Stokes first introducing that idea of, of mass contraception right up to the the sixties and the introduction of the of the contraceptive pill and now that sort of parallels mm. the rise of individualism again and you know that, that turns out to be again a lot darker history really than, than I think the sort of idealism of the 60s would have thought. Yes I think so. But um, sort of parallel in that in the book you talk about the changing attitudes to sex in literature as well mm. mentioning people like you know sort of D.H. Lawrence so those two things are obviously I mean, I guess they, they pull each other along, don't they, as they're changing yeah. society. And they certainly go hand in hand. But, I mean, you're right about it being much darker than the simple idea of just a freeing up of sexual liberation yeah. would, would suggest. I think the, uh, the song Rape by Peter Wingard sums this up probably better than anything else. It was 1971, maybe, give or take a year. Something like Peter Wingard was a huge star. Mm-hmm. Right, He was um, Jason King, the, the spy in, in the series. He's the guy uh, Austin Powers is based on, more or less. Uh, but a real major celebrity. He had a, uh, a major label record, a major record label giving him, um, signing him up, getting him to do an album and things mm-hmm. like this. So this was, you know, front and centre in, in our culture. And on it, he does this song, Rape, which is about... Uh, the different pleasures of raping people from different ethnicities, which he talks about in his suave, spy-like way, over this sort of easy-listening 70s music, and women screaming in the background. And this thing exists. And people, everyone involved must have thought, well, that's OK. You know, that uh, this is, as I say, made, it wasn't just in the obscure corner of culture. Mm-hmm. This was a big star on a major label. And uh, just go to YouTube and look up Peter Wingard Rape, will just give you the uh, 
for what for me is the sort of ultimate expression of that weird combination of the understanding ourselves of individuals, like not thinking mm-hmm. about thinking about ourselves first, uh, which does not lend itself to thinking about consent or, or about or about losing the your know, individual ego in mm-hmm. in, in, in and um, this freeing up of sexual liberation with the pill and, and, and the change in society. It just got really really odd, really dark, and you know seventies TV is all is fairly unbroadcastable now mm-hmm. due to the you know women only existing you know to scream and be chased and to take their clothes off and you know that whole Benny Hill thing yeah. and, and things like that that was just considered normal it's bizarre I think it's, it's only really recently that we've started to look back on that period as that you know the idea that the pill like women's sexuality has always been something that's been difficult to acknowledge never mind sort of discuss but the idea of the, of the pill as being something that would sexually liberate women but only if it was four men, really. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was at the time. I mean, we think of the sixties as a form of uh, as that great period of liberation mm-hmm. across culture, really, because of you know what it did for um, civil rights, gay rights, environmentalism, vegetarian, all these movements we associate with the sixties. And I, I think because of that, there's a tendency to um, see feminism as part of the sixties. But it's striking that that isn't the case. It really is the 70s. It really is afterwards that uh, the women's lib movement uh, becomes quite so central to culture as it, as it became yeah. with the likes of Jermaine Greer and things like that. And obviously, there were predecessors. I talk a lot about Betty Friedman in the yeah. book and, and, and things like that. But it was... The 70s women's lib movement was, in many ways, a reaction to how awful things had got for the way women who were just sort of viewed as objects. It's that... It's that Grateful Dead song, um, Jack Straw. We can share the women, we can share the wine. There's this, this, this notion of, of, of women as objects, mm-hmm. or that, uh, that Mungo Jerry. Mungo Jerry. Jerry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, in the summertime, yes, in the summertime, that great drink driving song. Yes, of course. How could I forget? Uh, if a daddy's rich, take her out for a meal. If a daddy's poor, just do what you feel. You know, this, this being an individual, being a free individual, is what's cool. Mm-hmm. And all attempts to put constraints on your individual freedom are just frowned upon mm. by society. Men's individual freedom. Men's individual Yeah, 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 yeah. It got very rapey. <laughs> it got very... And, you'll, and, and now, of course, we're seeing all the people who came up in... in and not all the people, obviously, but, you mm. know, uh, obviously I'm thinking of Jimmy Savile. I'm thinking of a lot of the politicians of the 70s, certainly into the 80s. The, the, the sort of these, these institutionalised paedophile scandals, which are, you know are still are still becoming clear, but there's a real sense that really consent was not the big, you know, was not what people was about. It was just this this focus on the individual, focus on yourself, mm-hmm. doesn't lend yourself to concern about the other person, which is not what sex is about. I mean, it certainly wasn't what Mary Stopes viewed sex as about. It, it certainly wasn't what D. H. Lawrence viewed sex was about. They all wrote about the importance of sex as a form of a complete spiritual union being necessary to being a complete happy person. It's just giving yourself totally to someone, um, losing yourself, that, that loss of ego, that, um, you know, the biblical phrase is to know, to know someone. It's, it's not about just you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about that, as the Spice Girls so, so beautifully put it, when two become one, to, to quote the Spice Girls, that wasn't what the uh, sexual liberation of the 60s was about at all. No, it's, it's amazing how sweet that sounds, you know, considering how things did end up, mm. the, the direction they took, the idea that there was, you know, such opposition to somebody like D.H. Lawrence does seem like really 
really quaint now. But it, it's a lot of a class thing, I think, yeah. I think, D.H. Lawrence. I think people can say, oh, it's just, it's so rude, it's terrible. But he, what he really understood was that the, was the class system was effectively, you know, the upper class were effectively zombies after World War One. You know, they still existed, mm-hmm. they were there, they shuffled around and moved, but they were dead, yeah. you know, they were totally dead. And he, his, his uh, Lord Chatterley is this, is, um, has been made impotent by uh, some uh, attack in the war. He's in a wheelchair. He can't carry on his name. You know, he summed up the impotence mm-hmm. and the, um, the end, basically, of, of the upper classes in England as anything other than a sort of historical curio. Uh, I think that's what was really shocking about, about Lady Chatterley. I'm Neil Denny, I'm talking to John Higgs, and we're talking about his book Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century. And John, to finish it off then, let's, I guess, bring us up to towards the end of, of the 20th century and some of the, you know, the movements and conditions that still, obviously are still affecting us today. But to start that off with, you're talking in the book about a, a movement in mathematics, chaos. Chaos, yes. I, a lot of what happened in the second half of the 20th century. We've been talking about individualism. And when I started writing this book, I just thought, well, I know what the story is. It's the rise of the individual, and that seems self-evident. Uh, so I start writing it, and it was you know, not an easy book to write, as I'm sure you can, you, you can guess. And it was only about, I mean, I took five drafts, but it was only about halfway through the third draft that I suddenly realised that that wasn't the story of the 20th century. After all, that was, that was certainly the story of the first half of the Mm -hmm. 20th century. And it appears to be the story of all the 20th century because individualism becomes so embedded in our politics. Mm -hmm. It becomes the standard political viewpoint, certainly from Thatcher onwards, Mm -hmm. this this idea of the individual with their own personal aspirations Mm -hmm. is how you understand politics. And and there's no such thing as society. Mm -hmm. Rise of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism and certainly all new labour. It was so entrenched. But... Politics is way behind everything else. Everything else was going, wow, individualism really is troublesome and doesn't actually make a huge amount of sense. It's so full of contradictions. Mm-hmm. You cannot understand uh, the world if you just view it as individuals. And I'm talking uh, be that uh, emotionally, biologically, culturally, um, socially, in any of these forms. We now have to look at, uh, you know, you can't understand something by itself. You have to look at it in context. That's, that. That's all of what the 20th century is about. Certainly chaos mathematics was a, a big part of that. Mm-hmm. So it became a real surprise to me that the book wasn't just the story of the rise of individualism. It was just this... Individualism was this period, this sort of liminal period between this hierarchical system ending suddenly and where we are now in this networked world. It was this brief period in between when, uh, when the old rules had ended, but the new hadn't started yet. So it was sort of wild and free, and anything goes, and, and violent and crazy and, and exciting and, and, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's only really politics that 
keeps this notion of, of the uh, the individual alive. Uh, from I, I like to view it from the point when Apollo eight rounded the moon, and you know they they gone to the moon. It was the greatest achievement in human history, the Apollo program, in my personal opinion. And they got around, and all of a sudden they went, "Oh God, look at that!" And there was the just hanging there. This this beautiful blue dot and no one had gone to the moon expecting to turn around and see the earth and um but this is what they all talk about you know they don't talk you know the moon okay it was interesting if you like rocks but uh, understanding the earth as a self-contained coherent biosphere as we do now was was a big big change in the way we understood the world previously the world uh, was horizon, you know, somewhere like America, it was a frontier, it was there for us to sort of look after and enrich ourselves from and things like that, but suddenly it was finite, we were suddenly in this finite system and everything was codependent on everything else, uh, and this is what you see in what was new and, and what we learnt in the 20th century, and chaos mathematics is, is a good example of that, certainly things like environmentalism and sort of very much keyed into, into that and, and the rise of the internet and, and so forth. So we started off not long into the discussion talking about modernism, the rise of modernism, art movement. It's a, um, and not particularly nowadays from the vantage point of the 21st century, great named movement. Yeah, it's quite kind it's of over funny. 100 years old. Yeah. But um, yeah, we, 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 we all sort of recognise modernism when we see it, I guess. And let's talk about... Well, playfully, I'll say what comes after modernism, <laughs> <laughs> which is Post something that modern. nobody understands. Well, it's that—it's such a bad name, and it's not as bad though as, as uh, Generation Y. You know, we had mm. we had the baby boomers who had Generation X, of which which I am part of, and that mm. sort of made sense. Generation X—it was sort of questioning sort of thing, and then it was well, what comes after Generation X? Generation Y, you know, there was nothing about the name that described uh, uh, what what was happening. And postmodernism was again a, a, a similar thing, but it was such a, a broad word for such a broad spread of ideas. It essentially, I think, it described where we were in the second half of the twentieth century really well. Mm. But I know that postmodernism as a word has become such. An insult, such yeah. a hated thing that you can just go, you can just call something postmodern and dismiss it. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of that has to do with the history of academia and postmodernism, which was a very tempestuous relationship, and not a wise one. Mm-hmm. Didn't end well. I talk in the book about the Sokol hoax, in, yeah. in, in which a, a totally spoof paper was submitted to a postmodern journal. Uh, called social text, mm-hmm. uh, which basically said that oh, the rules of physics can be anything we want them to be yeah. because that's you know, uh, that was a nice postmodern idea. And the, the people who run the journal didn't sort of notice that it was spoofing them, and they just ran it. And, and instead of this being seen as an attack on the editorial boards of academic journals, which would make a lot of sense, mm-hmm. it became seen as a killer blow to postmodernism itself because postmodernism sort of. I don't know, I guess you could say it sort of denies any exterior framework to make sense of it, which is the opposite of academia, which Mm -hmm. academia is an external framework to make sense of all our knowledge. So things, I would say, are fundamentally uh, incompatible. But beyond academia, beyond all these, you know, meaningless, meaningless papers, pretty much all our culture or a large part of it was what would be called postmodern from cartoons like Danger Mouse that was self-aware uh, an awful lot of comedy Monty Python 
um, video games certainly mm-hmm. um, a lot of music I'm thinking New Order pop videos you know all the, all the ideas of postmodernism the idea that you can you don't need an external um, framework to uh, justify what you're doing you can mash together whatever you like you don't you're not concerned about it being highbrow you're not concerned about it being lowbrow you're just whacking weird stuff together and, and, mm-hmm. and, and see and seeing what you get that was everywhere that was throughout society yeah. and so I, I think those who just dismiss or well, the idea that postmodern is something we just have to go that was a mistake yeah. what I don't believe it was a mistake at all that sort of dismisses all the steps that took us there all the gradual understanding um, that that certain frameworks are arbitrary that, that uh, certain viewpoints were not in any way sort of favoured it doesn't necessarily mean that um, anything goes yeah. yeah you still have to be practical about these things but uh, well I would yeah. say I mean I've got sort of two points to add to that really and and first of all I mean you know obviously the uh, one of the key tenets of, of postmodernism is uh, you know sort of, you know jouissance, the sort of sense mm. of playfulness yeah shall we say and very much in that in that sense can I say that um, you know one of the key tenets of, of postmodernism is surely the idea that there are no fixed viewpoints yeah definitely <laughs> and um, you know, it's all dependent on the observer which is the central argument of this book yeah absolutely postmodernism is so key to the 20th century mm-hmm. that just because it's got a terrible name and just because a lot of crap was written in academia uh, we can't dismiss it we can't dismiss it. I mean I t- for the postmodernist chapter when I was approaching it I was thinking oh dear god this isn't going to go well I've got to write a chapter on postmodernism on oh, hell's teeth how am I going to do that mm-hmm. uh, essentially as you shall know you've seen the book the, the chapter basically uh, uses Super Mario Brothers mm-hmm. as the way to explain postmodernism, and I think that's much more in keeping uh, with how we should understand it than academic, you know, squabbles. Yes. Which you then, you know, you then deconstruct that and discuss how that was a very postmodern thing to do, and yeah, and everything. yeah. Um, you also you start off the chapter with you know, the classic, um, you know, I happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here, seen from Annie Hall. Ah, that's great, yes. Great, greatest films of all time as well, in my opinion. <laughs> um, what I, the second point I was going to make was that, the, you know, I think, although this sort of period of time would be, would be post that sort of classic Foucault-esque sort of like academic postmodernist period, but I think mm. it also absolutely sums up that weird post-Berlin Wall pre-9-11 end of history period yeah. I mean, there was that sort of very weird that period obviously the you know the rise of neoliberalism as well but that that sort of when we absolutely without any sort of sense of irony said you know capitalism has won history is over that sounds like a very postmodern thing to me as well well yes i mean that was that that was very much tied up in the whole neoliberal worldview, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the notion that the, uh, the individual as the only way to understand ourselves was the end point of, you know, uh, we'd, previously we'd had that, as I say, that know your place thing, but we'd evolved out of that mm-hmm. and now we saw ourselves as free individuals. And uh, the fallacy at the heart of you know, Thatcherism, New Labour, was that was the end point of how we would come to see ourselves, mm-hmm. right? that we weren't, weren't continually evolving, that, that, was, that was it. That's not it at all. There's a real sort of dividing line. I, I think um, how you react to selfies is, is the best example to show which sort of 
side of Europe. If, like me, I was born in 1971, mm-hmm. I'm a product of the 20th century, of the glorification of individualism, you see somebody holding a phone up in front of their face and taking a picture of themselves, the temptation is to see that as a person vainly photographing themselves to mm-hmm. see themselves. But to uh, um, someone from the millennial generation, they don't see it in those terms in the slightest. They see it in, you know, the photo only exists to sort of strengthen social bonds. Mm-hmm. They cannot be seen, if you just think of one person, they're thinking of, of the whole group, of, of the whole network. It's somebody mm-hmm. winking at all their friends. Um, it doesn't make sense in isolation. It only makes sense in, in the wider picture. And which one of those you are, uh, I think, is very, very telling. Mm-hmm. And even now, at the moment, we've got the, um, the, the Labour uh, leader elections. It's, it's coming up in a couple of weeks. And um, the position of all the Blairites is a blind panic, right, and, and the horror of, of the rise of Jeremy Corbyn. I don't know when this will go out, but at the moment that's the, that's the position. And what they seem to be saying when all these young people are flocking to Jeremy Corbyn is that it's some horrible throwback, right, as if the generation of digitally connected 21st century internet-enabled people are, are looking at the world and saying, well... We should really just be like, you know, a union leader from Carry On Up yes. at Your Convenience or something People like that. probably can't you know, even really remember Margaret Thatcher being yeah, in power. That's really not what they're doing. You know, they're re- they are really are seeing the world in a fundamentally different way to how the Blairites are. Mm-hmm. And the Blairites are the throwback now. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there's, there's uh, demographic and generational shifts and things like that, so it takes a while to... It takes many decades for these things to work themselves through the system. But it is the case of politicians just not grasping the changes that have occurred in the, in the generation below them. I'm Ian Sinclair. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. One more point then, just to finish off. And I guess we'll, we'll, we'll sort of cheat and, and extend the 20th century up to where we are now. That's what really. I did. For the sake of yeah. for the sake of this point, you know, you mentioned earlier on in the interview the influence of people like Timothy Leary on Silicon Valley, mm. um, but also there's a romantic image of um, of Silicon Valley as being like a sort of 1960s egalitarian thing. But of course, they've all got their Anne Rand books on yeah. you know on their shelves. It's an incredibly um, individualistic neoliberal place as well, and I think that's that's sort of shown in that in the, the sort of contradiction of we are now a network culture. The internet has made us... The society we live in now is sort of... That, I think that's the big thing that was unrecognisable to... You talk earlier in the book about um, people like H.G. Wells cleverly prophesizing some of the things that would happen in the future. And the thing that has never really been sort of visualised, I think, is, is the way that the internet has connected everybody. Mm-hmm. It's a network, a socialist network of individuals, individualistic people. Yes, we are all individuals, you know, that's... Yeah, and uh, uh, we have become a planet of individuals, you know, that's what... Uh, it's, there's, a, there's a big contrast in, in, uh, or um, a contradiction in the heart of, of the computer culture. And uh, a lo- as I say, a lot of it came up from this, this hippie, psychedelic era, early online communities such as the well it's very much obvious you see it in in things like uh, the open source movement mm-hmm. um things like wikipedia this this egalitarian coming together of contributing combined with this sort of rabid sort of monopolistic business culture of of, mm-hmm. of, of the startups and, and but it has changed 
our world so radically, just this connecting up of everyone. Because essentially, I was talking earlier about at the start of the, 19th, uh, start of the 20th century, we were still this hierarchy with emperors at the top. It was like, if you imagine uh, human beings are like points of light, so they were all connected up in this uh, vertical hierarchy to our, our lord and master at the top. That ended at World War mm-hmm. I, and now it's like all those links just shattered, and we became these free-floating points of light, trying to make sense of our lives mm-hmm. in, from that perspective. And we got freedom, you know, and we, and we got the ability to go in the directions we wanted, to become the people we wanted, and, it, and that was very, very valuable. And we sort of wanted freedom without responsibility. But this this feedback loop being in, in, introduced into our culture from, from Silicon Valley, from the internet, and suddenly we're all connecting up to each other again. So we've, we've become this sort of, this network, and information flows differently through a network than it does a hierarchy. And as a result, this wave of transparency has just washed across all our institutions, all our cultures, everything from MPC expenses to you know the Vatican paedophile stuff to FIFA to the LIBOR uh, rate rigging to South Yorkshire police there's just scandal after scandal after scandal because when we just had um, hierarchical institutions the way information flowed around meant that corruption could build in mm. can build up and it became normalised you know MPs expenses were just normal it was just what people did but when information flows in a different way suddenly it seemed to be not normal you know suddenly we have all the corruptions of, of the past you know how many decades are all coming to light at once and it just seems a bit terrifying it just seems that we just live in the most horrible world on, on some levels in the in the 20th century the fact that nixon was uh, linked to watergate the watergate burglary was such a huge scandal mm-hmm. that it took you know the uh, american legal system and the american press you know years to work through now that little scandal seems trivial you know so many more just jaw-droppingly awful embedded corruptions coming to light because this wave of transparency is just swashing around our entire culture. Mm-hmm. Because it's so new, it's, it's, it's quite traumatic. But I kind of think in the long run it's got to be a positive thing. It has to be a positive mm-hmm. thing to be sort of washing uh, away. And we're suddenly confronted with how everyone else thinks. You know, you go on Twitter and it can, it can be... Are quite disturbing and appalling to just see all this bitterness and this trolls and this nastiness. And um, there was uh, John Nonson wrote that fantastic book, and it's mm-hmm. only been publicly shamed, that sort of looks at people who, who've just done a stupid thing and, and had their lives destroyed because of it. Because previously, you know, I mean, a good example is the woman who put the cat in the bin. Mm-hmm. You know the cat bin woman? She'd done that five, ten years earlier. She'd have just put the cat in the bin and gone about her business and nothing would have happened, right? But now you do something like that and there's consequences to your actions. Mm-hmm. And the consequences in that case are being considered one of the most evil people in the world by, by many hundreds of thousands of people and losing your job and having mm-hmm. your life destroyed. It's, it's a real change. And it can seem grim, you know, it can, it can seem frightening. But at the same time, the notion that if we accept that we're responsible for our actions and what we say, and that if, you know, we say something that causes uh, a lot of upset to a lot of people, we will hear about it, kind of thing, that's got to be a positive thing in the long run. Once we get used to mm-hmm. this transparency, once we get used to the way information flows around this new networked world, it's, it's not going to be 
you know, it's it's not going to be this grim forever. I think that's the takeaway point then that we can uh, we can stop on. So I've been talking about Stranger Than We Can Imagine: Making Sense of the Twentieth Century by John Higgs, and it's published by Wiedenfeld and Nicholson on the twenty seventh of August. John, thank you very much for telling me about it. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.